episode of the Better Two Podcast is brought to you by Kitty Mystic and DM Needham, author of My Days with the Dark Muse, as well as Love is Worth Waiting For. Hi, gang. Donna here. Thanks for tuning in to the Better Two Podcast. Today's guest is Masha Mikanowski. Masha, well, he went on a journey, and a journey that kind of he decided to write a little bit of fiction about, but not fully about his life. So we talk about his journey of growing up in Israel and moving and how when he was close to 40, he started questioning his faith and what he decided. So we talk about that and we talk about his book. So I hope you enjoy the show. Hey, Moshe, how are you doing? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. So you had a major life choice and this, your story you know, I'm going to jump right in because yes. your story is similar to what a book that you wrote. Mm-hmm. So let's talk reality versus fiction at this yes. point. <laughs> um, it's and it's about religion. So you you were raised one religion, and you decided at a certain point that this isn't for me. Yeah, and um, I, I was raised. So just a bit of background: who I am and how I was raised, etc. And then we can tie it up to the book. Um, so I was born and raised in Israel in uh, an Orthodox family, uh, Jewish Orthodox, and it's um, it's it's a modern Orthodox. It's not like uh, you know the ultra Orthodox. Uh, if you see some of the show on Netflix these days, they have a few shows that portray the ultra Orthodox. You know the Hasidim with the payas and the black clad and all of that stuff. Um, but uh, the, my background is more modern, and modern meaning that uh, we we do work in the regular work so we don't you know spend all our days in yeshiva uh, we have tv at home uh, we wear um, like modern uh, um, clothing and stuff like that uh, but uh, you know we we keep our orthodox lifestyle so i would wear a kippah always as a, as a boy and then when i grew up i did go to a yeshiva but then i also went to the army in israel um, and um we keep kosher, we do all the holidays and stuff like that. Now, this is a very, um, you know, it's a strict uh, bringing on one hand, uh, but on the other end, it's also because it's modern, you are open to the world. But when I grew up, uh, I went only to boys' schools. It was a religious school. We study half a day religious studies, and in the afternoon, we would study uh, general studies, um, I really didn't have interaction so much with the outside world. And then when I went to the army, that was when I was 18 and I went to the Israeli army, it was the first time that I really uh, interacted with people that are not exactly like me. So, I, I had another guest who grew up in Israel. Um, mm-hmm. I believe he lived in Italy for a while. He became a male model, but he also served in the Israeli military. Mm-hmm. So yeah. he told me a little bit about it, but go ahead. Tell us more. Yeah. yeah. So, so although it's, it's mandatory, you know, to, to serve um, the uh, uh, people that are ultra Orthodox, they many times they don't serve actually. So they will have this exempt to go and study in a Shiva for the, for the men and for women for religious uh, reasons. Um, so, but, you know, as modern Orthodox, I did go to the army and um it was a bit of an eye opener for me 
but I still, I still practice my religion. And I actually practice the religion for many, many years after I married. Um, uh, my wife, is, she's from a very similar background, also from a modern Orthodox family. Uh, we had um, three girls while we were still, you know, practicing our um, uh, orthodoxy, Jewish, uh, Jewish orthodoxy. And um, we, um, you know, it, it wasn't uh, like something that happened to me when I was young. It was more later in my life. Um, we actually, uh, we moved to North America with my job. I, in the army, I was a software developer and then, I, um, when I finished my service, I went to uh, um, regular work, you know, outside, and uh, they uh, sent me over to the U.S. Uh, I was in Michigan for six years, and then I had to, um, my visa expired, so I had to leave the States, and I moved to Canada, where I am today, in Toronto. And throughout uh, that time, we lived uh, in a modern Orthodox environment with uh, you know, many friends that were similar to us. Uh, and um, I, I had, you know, I, I, I was nurturing doubts and nurturing questions about it as time was, was going by, but I was very um, conformative in my, in my uh, lifestyle. So, you know, this is a lifestyle I knew. This is a lifestyle that I felt comfortable with. This is a lifestyle that my parents and my siblings uh, and my in-laws and my uh, everyone <laughs> were practicing, so I was practicing as, it, uh, it as well. And and later on, I was mm, uh, probably around 36, 37, that uh, I decided um, after you know, like soul searching, maybe towards my midlife crisis. Who knows? But to, to see, you know, is that really something that fits me? And um, I, I had to tell my wife, I have to tell my kids, and uh, we explore things together. You know, what does it mean, like, do, if we change that lifestyle? And, um, you know, the rest is history. Well, and the thing is, when you're, when you're that age, you do start questioning things. It's like, well, is this really, was this was this what I really wanted or is this something because it's comfortable and I learned it and I grew up with it, that it just fits like an old shoe. You know, yeah. I, I understand a little bit what you're talking about. Cause in Chicago, we do have a large Jewish population um, near Skokie. And I used to have to drive right through there to get from my job to my apartment. So mm -hmm. you would, it would be very common to see people walking in the street dressed in full garb. Um, and I know that's not the proper terminology and I apologize, but I also don't no want to say the wrong thing. No um, <laughs> my stepfather was Jewish, but he, you know, he was born and raised here. His parents were from New York and they had immigrated, but they never really practiced mm. faith. Yeah. Yeah. And, and there is also that thing when you are an immigrant and you move from one country to another, you tend to uh, find the people that are similar to you. And to get you help adjust, you know, to the new environment. So, so that's what we always were attracted to, um, for these reasons, but also for practical reason. When you're Orthodox Jewish, you keep the Sabbath, so you don't drive on the, on the Sabbath, and you have to go to the synagogue. So you have to live in an, in the area where it's a walking distance from the synagogue. So everyone will live around the same area. So if you drove over there on the Saturday, then for sure you saw people walking around. Um, I actually uh, came, I, I, I used to live in Michigan in um, 
uh, Oak Park, Michigan, mm-hmm. uh, which is also quite a lot of uh, Jewish people there. And we would drive sometimes to, um, to Skokie to, to get some kosher food because there are some good restaurants over there. <laughs> so some people would drive for four hours just to, to eat over there. <laughs> wow. Wow. But yeah. I mean, it was a very prominent town. I haven't been that area. I haven't been in that area about, for about 20 years now. Mm. So I'm pretty sure it hasn't changed much. But then mm-hmm. again, you never know. Yeah. Yeah. So what made you ultimately, I mean, did, did you completely change your life or did you just explore and say, okay, we're going to keep these parts, but not these parts? Yeah. So being Jewish and, and Judaism is still important for me because it's not just a religion. It's also a culture and um, like the holidays and mm-hmm. uh, keeping kosher just because you want other people to be able to come to your home and eat in your home uh, and, and things like that. And, and also, mainly because we were not in Israel, we were not surrounded only by Jews, but by many other people, we still wanted our kids to be able to learn, you know, what is it, what does it mean to be Jewish and what are all the traditions and stuff like that. So we, we didn't want like to completely get away from that. Uh, And that's what we did. We, we kept, uh, we kept the house kosher, for example, we, um, the kids, uh, we moved them to public schools, but they did take um, Jewish studies in, in like uh, Sunday schools and stuff like that. Um, and we, t- we also send them to uh, youth groups that are Jewish youth groups to get enrichment this way. Um, we send uh, one of my, uh, two of my daughters, they went to summer trips in Israel the, the, uh, through these groups. And also one of them went to the one in uh, Poland. So she was able to experience also uh, you know, the history over there, uh, the Holocaust history, etc. So it, it was still very important for us. Um, and all our families is in Israel. So you can't really right. detach yourself completely from that. So it's, um, it's not even possible. <laughs> well, well, will your kids be going back to Israel to go into the military? Since it is required, um, so they, they could if they wanted to, um, but they decided uh, not to. So they are they they stayed here. Uh, some kids, what they do is they will uh, go for a, like a gap year after high school before they start uh, university. Uh, they also decided not to do that, um, and um, they they got because they don't live in Israel, they live outside of Israel. They got this special exempt from the uh, IDF that. You know, they can still come travel to Israel without being snapped and, uh, and make them go to the army. So they, they understand that people, if they don't live over there, it's a bit hard for them to commit to that. Yeah. Well, that's good that they recognize that because I'm not sure that every place would. You know, if you're a citizen, well, then you should be doing this. So mm-hmm. um, what made you decide to write your book? Yeah. So the book is, is completely fiction. So it's not about me. But... It, it has um, some uh, of my background and some, uh, you know, anecdotes and, and um, environments from my background. Now, I always love to do stuff creatively. I, I love painting and I love writing and I love doing different things. And um, it, it happened actually eight years ago. I, I had this idea for a story. Well, it wasn't even an idea for a story. It was an idea for what if. What if something like that would happen? Uh, the, 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 the name of the book is uh, The Resurrector, and it's a translation from, from the Hebrew words, uh, so the one who resurrected the dead. 
and, and the idea was, what if someone will come to a family or to a person that one of their loved ones is dead and it will make them alive again for them? So I had this idea eight years ago and my daughter, she was in grade nine, my oldest daughter. Uh, and she um, decided to participate in uh, NaNoWriMo. Um, NaNoWriMo, for anyone who doesn't know what it is, it's the National Novel, uh, Novel Writing Month. Um, in November, which, usually. In November. So every November, uh, for 30 days, people all over the world are sitting down and writing 50,000 words novels. So she said, okay, I'm going to do it with some friends. Some of her friends want to do it. I have an idea. And I told her, oh, I have an idea also. Let's do it together uh, because I want to encourage her to, to really do it. She, she is also, she loves writing. Um, I didn't know what will happen from that. But at the end of the month, I had a story. And um, then I started editing it and editing it and editing it. Now, the thing about the story is that I, I knew that it's easy to write about something you know. So I put in the story like, my background um, city and my background uh, building. And I envisioned like how my um, different places in the city looks like. And then I put them in the story. So a lot of that is in there. And uh, people, when they read it, they can actually, they actually tell me it's like, I'm taking them to that city. Or even if they've been there, they're like, oh yeah, we can see that. We can see that city in there. Um, or, or how the apartment looks like. Uh, uh, how some of the um, cultural or, or um, uh, aspects of, of living are, you know, mm -hmm. and things like that. So, so that's what I put from me. And then also the characters. So, you know, every, every book, you have to create some tension between the characters, something has to happen. So it's, it's um, a family with a very similar background to mine. And one of the sons in the family, he's also, he is not uh, religious any anymore. So, so I kind of like knew how it felt. So I was able to also put myself into that. And that's the best thing to do as a writer is to put yourself into the character's place. So it's authentic. Exactly. Exactly. It's easier to put words in their mouth. It's easier to um, um, almost uh, know what they're going to do next. If mm -hmm. something happened to them. Uh, and, and then it feels right when you read it. So that's what uh, was important for me as well. I mean, right, writing is like acting. You have to live in the moment when you're writing. If you're not, then you're not really putting enough emotion or passion into it. And there's a good chance your readers are not going to engage with you. Definitely. And I was worried all the time because when I wrote it, I, I you know, thank God my family is healthy. My parents are here with us. So uh, I didn't have to go through this type of, um, you know, um, um, sad moments in the life or tragedy. So that was one of the things I was worried about that I will not convey it enough in, 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 a, in the right way uh, as if someone like someone that did, they did uh, happen to them. Uh, my wife, or she lost her mother um, six, seven years ago. So, I, I kind of try to see, you know, how she feels, but it's not, it's one thing to see it from outside and another thing to actually experience it. I hope I will not have to experience it, to, you know, for many more years. Um, but that was the main worry that I had where with other areas, I wasn't so worried because I, I knew I'd been there. I knew I've done that. Yeah. I mean, that's the, that's the thing. It's like, if you are experiencing it, from somebody else's point of view, you can 
and because it's a close family member, you can kind of get the, the gist of it, but you mm-hmm. don't have the full power. Yeah. But it still gives you enough as a writer, if you're good, to be able to pull from that. Yeah, exactly. And that's what I hoped that I was able to do. Well, if people have complimented you on your book, I would assume yeah. that that is the case. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> so is there, do you plan on writing more? I mean, I see your artwork behind you. So we do know that you paint, as you said. So are yeah. there more books in the future or was that just a one-off thing? I, I have more books in the future. I'm, I already started writing my next book. Um, it's not related to this book at all. Um, it's actually a book I wrote the next year in the NaNoWriMo 2014, uh, but I never really edited it. I never worked on it since then. Uh, and this one is more um, local Toronto story. Um, also had a bit of uh, fantasy in it. I like that type of like strange things that can happen. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, I actually wrote it on the subway. Uh, so I wrote it every day when I was going to work and back during NaNoWriMo on my phone and then sending it to myself and edited it to mas- the master file. <laughs> well, you know, however you can write, that's that's the thing. Exactly. I mean, wherever you can find the time to do it. <laughs> exactly. Because, I mean, there's a lot of time where it's like the idea comes and you just don't have anything else to. Mm-hmm. I remember before we had phones that like this, I was working at a job uh, at Montgomery Ward, which is a now defunct department store. Mm. And I was working as Christmas help in the paint and toy department, which why would paints and toys be in the same place? I don't know. But I remember all I had was like scraps of receipt paper to write on. So I'd sit there and I'd pull out enough receipt paper and I'd go in the back and I'd write down what I could for my Mm -hmm. story and then tuck it in my pocket. Yeah. But now, you know, you can just turn this on and record and there you go. So That's true. I mean, I'm not so much about, uh, you know, dictating and and stuff like that, even with messages. When people send me messages and it's a voice one, I'm like, it's a bit uh, weird to me because I like texting or writing. Mm -hmm. Uh, But yeah, whatever works for you. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So what do you... What do you do besides painting and writing? I mean, what is your other passion? I mean, do you have a, are you passionate in your job? I mean, you're a computer programmer, correct? Or software? Yeah, yeah, of course. Um, Yeah, I started as a computer programmer, but these days I'm actually, I I kind of, uh, during my career, I I moved to product management. And product management is the area where you kind of between the business and the development, and you find uh, what problems to solve and creating value to, you know, the users, the business, et cetera. And, and that's really what I'm passionate about. I um, talk a lot about this also on LinkedIn and other places. Um, I have a podcast with a friend that we started uh, last year uh, about uh, products that product management managers are, are using. Uh, so, so that's another passion that I definitely have at work. And it's really important to find passion at work because uh, otherwise you're getting really, really bored. So I, 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 I'm, I'm happy that I, I like that. Well, I mean, the, besides being bored, sometimes it can become toxic if it, it's too bad. Yes. Um, I did have a gentleman who is an inventor. I've had a couple of inventors on the show. And he talked about how he realized at a certain point that while he invents things, he's much better. You know, he wrote a book basically with all the mistakes about being an inventor. Oh, that's cool. That way you don't have to make those mistakes Yeah. because there's so many people that think, Oh, I got an idea. This is going to be a million dollar idea. And he, he talks about 
the electric or the pot stirrer. He did, invented a pot stirrer. So you wouldn't have to stand there and make it. He's like, yeah, it didn't sell that well. He's like, that's my mistake. <laughs> I, I'm thinking, well, I mean, for me, I don't like sitting there. If you're making a roux or a sauce from scratch, I don't have the patience to sit there and stir. So that wouldn't be a bad thing, but. Right. Right. <laughs> most people don't cook that often anymore. I don't think, well, with the pandemic that might've changed a little but Yes, I know. I know. So I know that there's a lot of news up from Canada right now about a trucking issue about the trucking protest or trucker mm-hmm. protest is that's not anywhere near you though. Is it? No, it's not. It's more, you know, in Ottawa and, and areas like that. Uh, in one of the days that they were driving to Ottawa, I actually was driving to Niagara Falls uh, and uh, my daughter was worried that I would get stuck behind some of those trucks, but I was, I was driving the, the other way, really. It was more about coming back. I didn't see any of them. So I, I, I think they were already closer to Ottawa. So it's really different directions all, all together. Uh, but yeah, I mean, you know, de- democracy, we, we, do, we, we do what we need to do. Some people, that's what they think they have to do. So um, we, we live in, a, we live in a, a good place and it's better to have it that way. Although not, I'm not, I don't necessarily agree to everything they said, but it's democracy, right? Right. And I mean, democracy is people are going to speak out. That's why we have democracy. So they can voice exactly. their opinion. So. Exactly. Just like yep. you and I do on the podcast. I mean, exactly. part, part of that is our opinion and exactly. what we think. Mm-hmm. So well, ultimately, when you started talking to your wife about your doubts about religion, how did that go? Yeah, it's... Um... It wasn't easy, especially for me, but also for her. It wasn't easy at all. Uh, it's um, it's a tough discussion to have, um, you know, especially that you're born into something. And um, it's not like I was in my 20s or, you know, teen. Uh, it was much later and we already have kids and, and et cetera. And all, all of our friends are in this environment. Uh, so it wasn't easy, but... Um, you know, it's. Uh, I, I think love conquers everything at the end. So, so that was really my um, uh, my luck that you know she really loves me and she, you know, our relationship was much more important than anything else in our family. And um, and and I think that every person at the end of the day have doubts or or they have questions. Some of them just you know. They, it's very easy for them to live with them. They just dust it away and they continue their life. And some of them, if, if it happens that, uh, you know, either internally, like it happened to me or externally, like someone kind of forced her to look into it and really put, put it under a magnifying glass and, and think about it and think what she wants, then, you know, people, people can change or they can change their, the way that they think or they can evolve or, or become, uh, I actually usually say that people don't change, but I'm kind of like, <laughs> uh, I think that I didn't change in many other ways. It's, I think it's more like I said before, evolving or more like adjusting um, uh, to change. Is, it's very hard, especially if things that we are uh, doing since we were little and, and not so, so much talking about our practices or our, you know, uh, religious stuff. But more personality or, or how we, like, I'm a conformist, but being a non-conformist is very hard for me. And, and that was like breaking that 
So it was much harder for me than it was hard for her because she's not that much of a conformist. So, so I think that that's what helped me as well. Well, and I mean, you know, you, we, we sit there and we think, okay, this is how I'm supposed to be. This is, who am I going to disappoint now? By, by saying, coming out and saying this, who am I going to disappoint? And, and that's a major thing because mm-hmm. especially the tighter your family is, the harder it is to come out and say, you know, I know we were, I was born into this, but I'm kind of having some doubts for me. Mm-hmm. I live a thousand miles away from my dad and I'm perfectly okay with that. And we talk, we text each other every once in a while, but I'm perfectly okay with that. We've been like that for a long time, mm-hmm. but there was still a fear of me disappointing him at a certain point in my thirties. So we go back to the 30 year old, my fifties, I don't really care. Exactly. <laughs> and we're changing that way as well. You know, as we, as we um, mature and get older, we kind of, we have to live our life. I mean, we can't live someone else's life all the time. And we also, we, we moved from uh, Israel in our early 20s. So it's been many years since we moved. And back then we were much more like, you know, well, you know, are we hurting our family in Israel by not being there? And also, are we hurting them if we, once, you know, this change happened? Uh, and, and we always think about it, but at the end of the day, you, you have to live your life the way that, that works for you. Yeah. Um, of course, if you don't hurt anyone, and that's where we're like, and especially growing up in this environment, the Jewish guilt is very uh, um, ingrained into you. <laughs> so. I'm not Catholic, but I grew up in New Orleans and there's a lot of Catholic guilt well, there. And my friends pick, yeah, my friends pick on me about, man, you got some Catholic guilt. I did so go to very, Catholic very high school, but yeah, <laughs> it's, we let very guilt, similar. yeah, we let, and, and here's the thing, who put the guilt there? Society, family, I mean. And religion. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I mean, my, my dad's mom, until the day she died, would read the rosary every night. So mm-hmm. she was a staunch Catholic. Mm-hmm. The rest of the family, not so much, but I still got sent to religious schools. Yeah. So I get it. I mean, it's kind of built in in some of those religions. And uh, it's very hard to break away from. So I hope I'm not giving too much of this guilt to my kids. Uh, <laughs> that's my hope. But kudos. <laughs> Well, you know, it's always, I'm not going to be my parents. And then somehow inadvertently, we, we, you're one yeah. day saying something to your kid and you're like, oh, exactly. No. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Again, another thing of getting older. Mm-hmm. <laughs> exactly. So I'm going to take a break right now and we'll be right back. When I discovered Buzzsprout, I was about 30 or 40 episodes already in and I thought, I really think they have a lot of opportunities here and a lot of options for me to explore, but it's going to be a lot of work to move the podcast. Wrong. It was so simple. It was a click of the button and everything transferred over seamlessly. And bonus, I got a website out of it, a website that has all my social media links for the podcast and everything there is central in one place. What, what could be more convenient? I mean, honestly, then besides that, couple of clicks of buttons and I'm on every major platform. It was simple. And you know, you want to build your audience. You want to be on every platform you can. And also the other thing was analytics. The analytics were top of the line. So if you have a podcast already and you want to move it, 
I would highly recommend doing it with Buzzsprout. And if you're new to the podcasting business, Buzzsprout is the way to go. And right now, if you follow the link in the show notes and tell Buzzsprout we sent you, it'll get you a $20 gift card if you sign up for a paid plan, which helps support our show, and we would greatly appreciate it. The only thing is, remember, before you freak out, if you don't get it after you get one paid month, it takes two before you get that Amazon gift card. So check Buzzsprout out. I'm sure you would be happy. And let's create something together and come over to Buzzsprout. All right. And we're back. So I want to go over, you had some messages that you like to talk about. And one of them is, do communities have the power to help us rise? Which kind of goes back to what we're talking about with the protest, with the trucking Mm -hmm. protest, because... Mm -hmm. These people are trying to make a statement. They're trying to elevate things, I guess, to make people notice. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So tell us, tell me your perspective on how communities can help us. Yeah. I I think that this is actually one of those strengths of religious communities. And, and I'm bringing that perspective from, you know, from uh, growing up this way that, when you are in that type of community, it really helps with um, the feeling of belonging, um, helping when you need help. Uh, like I mentioned before, when you move to a new place and you find your community, it's much easier to find it. Everyone has the same goal, the same uh, you know life cycle. You go through the same life cycle, so you know what is expected of you. You know what is expected of others. Um, so it's it's um it really makes life much more structured. And for people that like structure in their life, it's a very good thing. And so that's where I'm, I'm, I'm meaning by, you know, it makes you rise. Um, the, um, I, I put it as a theme, you know, as a question or a theme for my book, uh, also because, you know, the, the book is in that environment and then you have this um, event in the, in the life, which is a death of a, um, um, uh, family member, and um, w- and then you're like, okay, so you you have one fam- family member that is a bit away from that because they're not religious anymore, and then you have the other family members that are still in that environment. They all come together to the same place because now they're mourning a family member, and then something strange happened to one of them, and then. How does all of that impact them? And can the environment around them help them really resolve these issues? And, and I don't know if I even have an answer to that at the end of the book, uh, because a lot of it is, um, um, you know, it's an individual journey for each one of them. And yes, the journey is always impacted but by what they're doing with other people and how the other people interact with them. Uh, but at the end of the day, it's, it's a very interesting question to me always. Um, and, and it was always a question, you know, when I decided to change my life, what would happen next? Uh, does that mean that I'm losing that community? Uh, and that sense of community was very important for me as well. So it's probably one of the reasons why we still, you know, uh, try to, we, we didn't move. We we're still living in the same place. So many of our friends are still the same friends, but we still created a new community around us of uh, more of Israelis that live here and they're not from religious background. Uh, I would have some of those friends back in Israel, but not too many, mostly from the army, but most of my my friends will be from uh, the same background. 
and um, and that community that that we kind of join into really help us also you know kind of move on with our life because we're not stuck in like between well and see something you, while you were talking came to mind is that when a person goes through a divorce or a loss or a move they suddenly have to figure out a new community they have to suddenly create this whole new relationship web because mm-hmm. especially if they have to move away from where they're at which you did you've done that mm-hmm. so you depend on community to try to get you acclimated and situated and f- bring you comfort because otherwise everything feels foreign and you don't you don't really feel like you belong yeah absolutely and I felt it a few times in my life uh, move into a new place a new language and then move into uh, and I did it you know more than once the new place not the new language no I know <laughs> <laughs> Uh, that's that was the condition when we move out of the state we say we want to keep living in North America but we don't want to learn either um, Spanish or French so Toronto was <laughs> the yeah. best, best next thing but um, we we I, I experienced that and then I experienced it again when I moved my kids for example to public school and it's a completely different environment completely different community and And I, I had to kind of like get used to it myself. I felt like a foreigner over there in the beginning. I understand. I, I spent most of my schooling in private schools. The first, mm-hmm. some, first time I ever went to a public school was I failed art because I had a conflict with my teacher. So to make up for the credit in high school, I had to go mm-hmm. to public school for summer school. Mm-hmm. When I transferred up to Shreveport, I ended up in a public school. My mom gave me the opportunity to go to public school or another all-girl Catholic school. So I opted to go to the public school yeah. because I'm like, I need to be able to interact with guys. I, want to, I don't want to be this little Catholic school girl. Mm. So I got to take art again and I passed everything. So that's why I know it was a personality conflict. <laughs> um, yeah. But, you know, it was a whole fish out of water because... The last school I had gone to that had boys was my junior high school. So mm-hmm. now it's two years later and I have braces and acne and there's boys and I don't know what I'm, yeah, it was just miserable. Yeah. I should have went to the girls' school, but I was miserable. <laughs> but I mean, that's one of those things where it's like, you don't know. And, and I've moved several places. So I understand completely. It's like, okay, we're moving. Mm-hmm. All right. Now what? Yes. And yes. people think, oh, if you're moving, then you're, you have a chance to just start over and everything's going to be perfect. No, you're still taking you with you. Yeah, yeah. It's not, it's not that hard. You're not a new person. You're still you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think that's one, a big misconception about I can go move somewhere and start a new life and nobody will know. Mm, especially nowadays, the internet remembers <laughs> well. <laughs> absolutely. I yeah. mean, back in the 70s and 80s, you might have been able to, but now, uh-uh, yeah, not even absolutely. close. Yeah. <laughs> so you talk, there's also, there's another quote here that says, are our egos binding us to that which is in front of our eyes? Mm-hmm. So explain this a little bit. Yeah, that's, um, it's, uh, that goes towards, you know, some of the, the lines in the story. Uh, so, so just uh, to talk a bit about about the story and what happens over there. So 
as I mentioned, there is uh, this family, they're sitting Shiva on what Shiva is the morning period and um, one of, uh, for one of their sons. Um, and the, the father, he is religious uh, and there is uh, two other uh, remaining siblings, um, a son, an older son, he is in the army and he is uh, the one that is not religious anymore. And then there is a younger girl, she's in high school, uh, only girls uh, high school and she's also religious religious and um the 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 father had this um um issue with his uh, dead son uh which i'm not going to tell what it is because that's that will tell yes it will uh, spoil the book exactly um but uh he they did he didn't talk with him for two years and then he uh and then the son dies so now after not speaking with him for two years the son dies he really doesn't have any closure or anything like that. And, um, and then he gets this opportunity uh, with the, the resurrector. The stranger comes to the Shiva house and he gives him this power to see his dead son again. And, and then he goes through this journey in the book, which I'm taking the reader with him, uh, to um, kind of uh, try to see what happened to his son and, and the things that he missed uh, he was there, but he missed them throughout the entire life. And he didn't really understand his son. And, and this is where, um, you know, many of us are, are either we're living within our own self and don't see what happens to others, even to the people that are closest to us. Uh, or uh, we do see it, but we sit in a different way. And then we miss the point completely about how other people are feeling and what their issues are, etc. Now, this is a father and a son, and the father and son should have a very close relationship, but unfortunately, that's not the case with many people. And, and that's really what I was trying to explore over there about um, hopefully is getting to it, you know, in the book. So everyone has to read the book to, to see what happens. But uh, that, that's really one of those ideas about not to not don't wait until it's too late and and see what's right in front of you while you still have the opportunity to do it well i think especially nowadays we don't so many people don't have the time so many mm-hmm. people are so engrossed in either you know their phone or being on social media or you know there are people that are working two or three jobs just to keep the lights yeah. on at their house and the sad thing about that is who's worries on the kids Mm-hmm. What what family unit do they have? Yeah, 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 definitely. And, and that's one of the things, that, the things that is very important for us, um, our family, to have dinner with the kids every day uh, and to do things together, to go on vacations together. And uh, it's very important. And then, I, I uh, like we, we talked about it already <laughs> before, how we are away from our parents and being away from our parents with this additional Jewish guilt or Catholic guilt, uh, what are we missing that we should really do now before it's too late? So right. it's, it's things that even, even if the relationship is great, we're talking with them every day, we are uh, still, you know, everything is good. Um, you know, I didn't see my parents for three years because of COVID. Uh, and it's, it's tough and I'm missing a lot of stuff. They're missing a lot of stuff. Um, so you know, everyone has can take lessons from that, and myself included. 
I think that also depends on how your relationship with it, with your parent is. If you have mm-hmm. a solid relationship with your parent, you're going to miss those things. And, you know, if you don't, then there's a couple of ways this can play out. You can try to figure out how you can reconnect with the parent. If the parent does not, if you're not going to reconnect, you're not going to reconnect. And mm-hmm. then you have to kind of go, okay, this is the re- way the relationship is. There's no changing it. I'm accepting of it. They were the best parent they could be. I'm now living for me. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. And and that's true as well. It's, is, um, it's like that with every relationship. You can only do the, your part. Mm-hmm. You can never do the other person part. And if they don't uh, play along or they're blind to it or their ego is playing games or whatever it is, uh, there is, uh, you know, limit, uh, uh, limited things you can do about that. Right. And I mean, that's, you just have to make peace with it. Otherwise you're going to drive yourself nuts. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think, you know, COVID, COVID was a gift in a way because it made it, it made some of us stop and look at what is important in our lives. Mm-hmm. Other people it's made them unhinged, but that's neither here nor there, I guess. But when you see people going to, we just had another shooting today at a grocery store. Mm. For what? I don't know. I, I only knew that there was a shooting. Mm. But when, when you see somebody like Karen, well, the Karens on social media yelling because somebody didn't do something, when did we decide that social discourse, you know, that there's discourse and then there's just obnoxious discourse that's being a little bit bratty. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and that's where people don't really think. That's where they don't see what's in front of them. Of them, that's uh, that's that's part of it. They think about themselves. They have knee reactions um, rather than uh, thinking a bit deeper or a bit wider than their own little uh, circle. Like the person calling um, the police because their sandwich wasn't made right. <laughs> Why would this has happened more than once? I hate to say it, but. Oh, no. I, and I mean, I, I know when I sit there and hear something like, oh, this can't be real. But then I know by having an insurance claim where somebody put an electric heating pad into a microwave oven and caught their kitchen on fire. And one of the insurance company, meaning the product company, the heating pad company to pay. Oh, my God. <laughs> for not only the heating pad, but the microwave and the whole damage to the kitchen and did not understand why. It was not their, why it was their fault. Yeah. Yeah. Some people are just out of the world. Yeah. So you just, <laughs> you just go, okay. And, and, then, and then you, and then you, you were like scratching your head. Uh, why did they write these little words here about not putting it in the microwave? Well, it, when I, when I got that claim across my desk, it suddenly became clear as to why we have such idiotic warnings on products sometimes, yes, because before exactly. I was like, there's no reason for this. And it was like, exactly. Oh yes, there is <laughs> because of the people. I bought a curling iron not too long ago and I would have never thought this. And it said, do not use on eyelashes. I'm like, are you telling me some idiot put this out their eyes? I mean, I in high, in high school one day, I was not paying attention and I had my legs crossed and I'm doing my hair and I leaned my curl and iron down and I burned my leg. That was my stupidity. I admit it's that. An accident, yeah. Right. But to put it by your eye, are you insane? 
on purpose. Yeah. <laughs> but to each his own, I guess. And, you know, it, it's, yes. it's, 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 you know, the big joke of somebody putting uh, the RV on cruise control while they went in the back and made a sandwich and then got in an accident, whether that's true or not, it was a Darwin award, whether it's true or not, I don't know. But <laughs> the thing is, I wouldn't be surprised. Yes, exactly. I won't be surprised. Because people do some crazy things. So I want to go to another topic thing that you had is, is the unexpected lurking around the corner. Mm-hmm. So is that referring to like death or is that referring to an opportunity? Um, yeah, it's a good question. I think it can go both ways. And uh, it can also, you know, goes towards the magical Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I always tend to think about the magical and stuff like that. And um, I, I know, you know, and, and that's really an interesting question also relating to everything we talked about before, you know, about religion, because religion believes in a lot of magic and a lot of miracles and stuff like that. So what is, um, um, you know, how, how much tolerance each one of us has to believe in stuff like that? And then to either take uh, control over our life and situations or wait for something to, to happen uh, because we believe in a, in a higher power or we believe that if we pray hard enough, things will happen and stuff like that. Now, definitely there are, there are situations like if someone is sick, um, there, there's this situation, of course, you know, uh, believing in the higher power and, and praying for the higher power to heal you uh, is one thing, but also if you will not go to the doctor and you will not treat yourself, then, Definitely, you know, you're not in a good a good situation. Um, but yeah, what what you're saying is also an interesting point, you know, about death as something that we, you know, uh, we we hear many stories about people that unfortunately, um, you know, departed way too early, um, a, or opportunities uh, that we don't think about. So there could be lots of many many ways to look at that. Yeah, and and that's the thing. It's like. We look at the world as, okay, it's only here and now and in this minute. And I've talked to women before because they're like, well, you know, my, ha- my husband handles everything. My husband handles all the money. And this is people that are younger than me. So they're in their 20s. And I, I'm, I'm kind of mortified by this because in this day and age, we have the technology to be able to share this stuff. Mm-hmm. So my question to them was, so what happens if your husband gets in a car accident? Mm-hmm. and gets killed. I don't know. Are you going to be able to access your bank account? Well, yeah, mm-hmm. I got the debit card. Do you know the passwords for the bills? Mm-hmm. No. Okay. Now, granted, he can write all that down, and that's fine. But have some, you know, have some empowerment because things are, you know, this isn't the 1950s where you're going to, I mean, you have a successful marriage, so I'm not going to knock it, but marriage is not always successful nowadays. So you're going to have to decide. And, and like I said, if something happens to somebody, I mean, I picked my husband, granted, I knew he was on borrowed time, but I picked him up from dialysis. He seemed perfectly fine within 10 minutes. He would be dead. Mm -hmm. So this, I mean, I knew this was coming, but did I expect it to happen like that? No. Mm-hmm. So this is what I'm saying. You don't know. I mean, how many times have you heard about somebody having a coronary event out of nowhere and driving through something because they were, they seemed perfectly healthy. Everybody thought yeah. they were perfectly healthy. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. 
And um, I mean, I lost um, a very dear cousin uh, last week, and she was uh, battling cancer for many years. We saw her um, just before uh, Thanksgiving the last time, and we were like, we don't know. My wife said, we don't know if we're going to see her again. And I was like, no, of course we'll see her. I was very like, you know, nothing could happen. It's like mm-hmm. I, I kind of like I knew that she's, uh, you know, she's very sick and I knew she's battling it. And I knew that right now the doctor said there is nothing uh, to do anymore. But I thought she will have oh, at least another year or two. And um, she passed away last week. And I was like, you know, as much as I was supposed to be prepared for that, I wasn't. No. Yeah. Nothing, nothing ever prepares you for it. I don't care how, mm-hmm. much, how well you think you're prepared for it. Nothing ever truly prepares you for it unless you are sitting in the hospital room next to the person when they take their last breath and you've been there for a bit. That is mm-hmm. the only thing that will prepare you because you know the inevitable is there. But if they mm-hmm. are, are appearing normal, no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because your mind has that way of put, putting it in denial. Of course, absolutely. We don't want to believe it will happen. Right. Absolutely. Uh, I mean, we, we try to sugarcoat things so we can keep going. And, you know, just one more day, we'll have one more day. That's it. The next day. And I mean, I can't tell you how many times and I didn't know about that I was living my life this way. The stress and anxiety that you put yourself under when you're living with somebody terminally ill, you're like, okay, mm-hmm. we made it today. Tomorrow will be fine. I hope, you know, in the back of your head, you're going, I hope I don't wake up and find him dead in bed. You know, because you don't know. So there's always these little thoughts and it's just, it's insane and intense. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Anyway, is there anything that we have not talked about that you would like to cover? Um, oh, we covered a lot of stuff. So I, um, not really. I mean, I think that uh, I, I hope people will, you know, go buy the book and, <laughs> and, um, and 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 enjoy it and you know get in touch with me because i would love to that's one of the things that i really enjoy seeing uh, uh how i create value to people so throughout my career when i build a product it's about creating value to the users when i painted uh, it's about making people happy with this painting when i write it's about would they enjoy the book so sometimes uh, it's very hard when you put it out there and you don't give, it's like all crickets or yes. people maybe enjoying it, but they don't even come back and telling you. Yes. So I, I, I love it when people do come back and they said uh, how it affected them, how it impacted them, if they liked it, even if they didn't like it, it's, it's better than, you know, if they don't come back and say something. <laughs> true, true. I mean, it's better if you're, you know, if they're going to give you, a one star and no comments or three stars and no comments, you can't improve as a writer. So mm-hmm. people really need to leave some right. kind of feedback because it, it helps, yeah. ins- it helps you make you a better writer. Exactly. And that's what I hope uh, I-, I want to continue writing. I have that other book that I, I want to finish this year. That's my goal to complete it this year. Maybe we, uh, you know, publish it even this year, but I publish, I worked on this one. I have published it in the beginning of uh, January. So it's fine if I will publish that one also in January uh, next year. Um, but uh, definitely to get uh, feedback from people um, is, and that's actually how I plan to do this uh, second book. I'm, I'm planning to pick up, you know, people that will be interested, of course, to do that. Um, 
they can reach out to me. Uh, and I'm, I'm going to pick up around 20 or 25 people that I will send them each chapter as I write it or as I finish editing it uh, for their review and uh, to get their feedback on the chapter. So this way they can read the entire book as I write, write it, but give me the feedback and then I will rewrite or revise it based on all the feedback to make it a much better book. So you're looking for beta readers. I'm looking for beta readers, but not at the end when I finish the book, but as I write it. Right, right. Yeah, so I, I'm trying to make it even uh, uh, kind of like, um, I don't know if deeper or um, more uh, interactive or I, I kind of, I, I'm trying to apply also things that I do at work for product management. I'm trying to think about it as a product how can I get feedback as soon as I can? And, and based on the feedback, make it better, uh, you know, faster. So that, that's, that's the idea. The only thing I will say is just make sure you vet them because you don't want your book on a pirate site. Mm-hmm. Yes, true. So I need to pick up the people that I know. So that will be easier. Um, because I pre-sold my, my first book, um, I, I'm trying to reach out to that community first. Uh, so I, I pre-sold it to most of them were people that I know, maybe 90% or 95% are people that I, that I knew. And uh, a few of them also were the beta for the, uh, for the, for the Resurrector. But that was when I had the full manuscript. Yeah. Well, I thank you for your time and coming on the show. And I wish you great success in all your endeavors. Thank you so much. That was a pleasure. I really enjoyed it. So, Masha, we had an interesting conversation, you know, having faith for so long and doing these traditions for so long and then deciding one day, hey, maybe this isn't for me. I think that we do that a lot in our lives. We sit back and, you know, maybe there's a food you used to eat. And I know this is really making this a microcosmic thing, but maybe there was something that your parents made that you absolutely deplored. My mother used to make vegetable soup and she used to use veg all canned veg all. And I remember every time she'd make the soup, I was just like, Oh, great. I'd go find the meat that was in the pot and, and fix that and eat that. But the vegetables were just not something I wanted. And for anybody that likes veg all, I'm sorry, but that's just me. Um, but it was something that, you know, the last time I had it, I can't tell you, and I'm glad I haven't had it in a long time because it just wasn't something that I wanted. So when we start unpacking things, whether it be people in our lives, family members, traditions, whatever, there comes a certain point in our life when it, it like we were talking about, we have to decide that we're going to own our lives. And you can choose to do that or you don't have to. It's, it's your choice. And that's the thing about life. We have free will. And we have choice. So I think that, you know, his book sounds very interesting. I'm going to pick it up and read it because, you know, we all go through these things. And I think there's some common common themes in his book that all of us can relate to. So on that note, (sighs) yes, wrapping up another podcast. On that note, if you want to be a guest on the show, Drop me a line at Donna, D-A-U-N-A, at better2podcast.com. That's Donna at better2podcast.com. You can also leave me a question, comment, concern. If you want to leave a review, you can go to podchaser.com or Apple, and you can leave a review for the show there. And if you want to catch up on an episode, you can find us on most sites. 
Or you can go to better2podcast.com and there's all the episodes right there, as well as our social links. So you can follow us on social media and get the, the trailers for the new episodes, as well as find out the weekly schedule of what's coming up. So I hope you have a wonderful evening, day, weekend, whenever you're listening. And I'll catch you next time, guys. Bye. The Better Two Podcast is mixed, edited, and produced by Rich Zai of Third Ear Audio Productions.